We have two readings this morning. The first reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The next reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Well, um, as Naomi said, my name is Geoffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide. Uh, it is great to be with you again this week. Uh, and if we've not met before, I look forward to hopefully catching you afterwards and saying g'day. Uh, Can I ask you, just as we start, to please make sure that you have access to an outline of today's talk. You'll find it on the hub, which I think there's probably a link on the screen if um, behind me. Uh, You will find it very hard to follow this talk if you can't see some of the verses that I'm going to refer to. So if you can have that in front of you as we begin, that would be really useful. Uh, And as Naomi said as well, uh, we're going to finish this talk. There'll be a chance for Q&A at the end if you'd like to ask questions uh, to come back on anything that I'm going to talk about today, uh, because as you can see, uh, it's a a reasonably weighty subject. I'm going to start our time for us, though, by praying. So uh, as you find your outline, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we um, come before you today and ask that in your kindness and mercy you might speak to us, Uh, you might remind us of what we are like but more importantly, of what you are like and how your Son, uh, who is our Lord and Saviour, is worthy of all our praise. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, I'm told that there are few things that people hate as much as going to the dentist. 
was talking to some of our dental students at uh, the campus group that I worked with the other day, and they told me there's even an officially recognised condition called dental anxiety syndrome, dental anxiety syndrome, which apparently nearly 75% of the population experience at some point in their life. If you've ever had to make an emergency trip to the dentist, then you'll know that when you go, all you want is instant relief. But before the dentist can make it better, they have to properly diagnose the problem because it would be a real shame if they extracted the wrong tooth. Well, why am I telling you about dentists? Uh, Because this talk in many ways is going to be like an emergency visit to the dentist. Uh, I promise there will be some blessed relief at the end, but like when you go to the dentist, you have to endure a little bit of discomfort at first as they poke and prod as you're in the chair. Uh, There's going to be a bit of pain before we get there. As Naomi said, we're in the middle of a series here on the doctrine of election, the idea that God chooses us. Last week, in the first of the talks, we saw how God's unfettered sovereignty means that our Creator is entitled to do whatever He wants with His creation. What was truly remarkable is that this Creator chose to make us to do good works and to share in His glory. Yet this week, what we're going to see is how our sin ruins everything, which means that our only hope is that that God intervenes once more to make things right again. Well, if you can see an outline, you'll see that I'm going to follow the same structure as last week. I'm going to talk about a big idea, then after that some questions to consider, and finally finish by asking how might we respond. Well, let's start then with the big idea. I'm going to kick off with the crucial passage in Romans chapter 1, the second of the readings that Naomi brought to us. Here, the Apostle Paul makes two critical points. Firstly, from verses 18 through 20, from the start of the passage, Paul says that the wonder of creation proves the existence of a creator. The wonder of creation proves the existence of a creator. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, understood from what has been made. Look there with me, if you will, at verses 18 through 20 on your outline. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What Paul is asserting here is that no one can claim that God is unknowable, or that God refuses to reveal himself to us. He says it's evident from the world around us. And yet Paul goes on to say that all of us have suppressed that truth about God. And that means, therefore, that, verse 20, we are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that every human being is, has willingly and willfully ignored the knowledge of God. We've turned a blind eye. Or as I've said there on your outline, we're all involved in a cover-up. And that means that by default, every person stands guilty before God. 
So, if someone asks, can you find God in creation? The answer is, yes in theory, but no in practice. Yes in theory, but no in practice. And one of the implications of that, of course, is that therefore evangelism that marvels, or sorry, that extols the marvels of creation and of scientific discovery, that kind of evangelism is insufficient. At very best, it might lead to theism, whereas what we want to do is lead people to Christ. Well, that's Paul's first idea. The wonder of creation proves God's existence. But secondly, in the second part of the passage, Paul goes even further. He says, not only have we rejected our creator, not only have we failed to glorify God or give thanks to him, we've even filled that void with something else. He'll say that we worship created things rather than the creator. Look again there, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. What Paul is saying here is that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. That's part of the way in which God has made us. He has made us so that we are drawn to give our lives in praise of something or someone, even if that someone is ourselves. And of course, the obvious point to make today is that worshipping created things rather than the creator, well, that's what the Bible calls idolatry, worshipping created things rather than the creator is just so easy to do here in Adelaide because people only worship good things. And I think we all realise just how full our lives are of good things in this part of the world. I mean, just stop for a moment, if you will, and consider how fortunate we are. I know you know this, but just to remind you of all the wonderful things about Adelaide, we have food and wine on tap. We have magic weather. I mean, yesterday, of course, was spectacular. Today, not so good, but yesterday, how sensational was that? Uh, Here in Adelaide, we have weekly festivals, apart from when coronavirus is on. You have affordable homes, there's no traffic, so you can actually get to your house without spending all day trying to get there. And, of course, the greatest thing about Adelaide is that, um, well, there are no convicts here. Um, When people find out that I'm from New South Wales, they still still remind me, the first thing they say is, we're all free settlers here. Uh, And I've just learned over the years to, to say in response, there's a good chance my family wasn't on the first fleet either. Romans 1 says that our knowledge of God derived from creation, instead of enabling us to live rightly in his world, it actually only serves to condemn us. And that means that in turn, we reap the consequences of our actions. We reap the consequences of our actions. Uh, Firstly, if we cut ourselves off from the source of life, it means that we are bound to die. Uh, Like on that great video clip you saw before, 
There was that wonderfully powerful image, wasn't it, of a computer that's been removed from its charging source. It's got life, but not for long. But actually, the essence of sin is more than just law-breaking or disobeying God's commands. The essence of sin is ingratitude. It's of not giving thanks, verse 21, which means that we have betrayed the one who has given us life. So here's today's big idea for the talk, and uh, if you can see on your outline, there's a blank for you to fill in. Here's the big idea. If God treated us fairly as we deserve, then no one would be saved. If God treated us fairly as we deserved, no one would be saved. At this point, you're thinking, okay, so is there any hope? Is there any hope or is this just going to be one long, bleak and depressing talk? Well, uh, there is hope, but uh, remember the trip to the dentist? Uh, Before we get there, the dentist is going to have to dig around a little bit to see just how deep the problem is, to see how corrupt we are. Uh, This will hurt, but the consolation is that relief when it comes will be even sweeter if we grasp just how dire our predicament is. So point two there on your handout, some questions to consider, and you'll see that I've got two to ask. The first is, are we really that bad? Are we really that bad? Uh, By which, of course, what every person here means is, am I really that bad? To which I want to say, yes, you are. Yes, we all are. And to make our case today, I want to introduce you to two theological terms. Uh, Like I said at the start of this series, I want to use theological terms so that if you want to read more on this topic, if you pick up a good Christian book, it'll make sense. And you'll see the two terms that I've listed there. The first one at the bottom of the left-hand side of the outline, the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. Okay, the doctrine of original sin says that because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, you and I are born into sin. The doctrine of original sin says that actually human nature is to be sinful. And that's because even though our loving God didn't make us that way, we no longer live in the paradise of Genesis 1 and 2. We live in the broken mess of Genesis 3. And I've given you a reference there to Romans chapter 5. Here's the Apostle Paul's reflection on this topic. Romans 5 verse 12, uh, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, this is a pretty inconvenient truth about humanity, not one that we like to hear very often. Uh, Countless works of fiction actually try to portray this in graphic detail. Perhaps the most famous is the 1954 classic book, The Lord of the Flies. The Lord of the Flies. Uh, This describes what happens when a bunch of English schoolboys are stranded on a desert island. And if you've ever read it, you'll know that it portrays the very worst in humanity, even in children. They are not angels, despite what the world might insist. Uh, And yet, of course, fiction is just a mirror for real life. 
I thought I'd tell you about an incident that happened in Canada when the police went on strike. Now, I need to ask this before I start. Has anyone here ever been or lived in Montreal? Oh, that's fantastic. I can get away with just about anything at this point. Okay, let me tell you what happened in Montreal in 1969. Montreal, now, from what I understand, Montreal is just a a peaceful, sleepy little city. It's much like Adelaide. Uh, Probably no convicts there. But listen to what human nature is like when... At 8 a.m. on the 18th, on the 17th of October, 1969, the Montreal police went on strike. By 11 o'clock, the first bank had been robbed. By noon, most downtown stores had closed because of looting. By 2 p.m., taxi drivers had burned down the garage of a limousine service that competed with them for airport customers. A rooftop sniper killed a provincial police officer. Rioters had broken into hotels and restaurants. And a doctor had killed a burglar in his suburban home. By 5pm, six banks had been robbed, a hundred shops had been looted, 12 fires had been set, 40 carloads of storefront glass had been broken, and $3 million in property damage had been inflicted before the city authorities called in the army and, of course, the Mounties to restore order. Now, my guess is that some of you are sitting there thinking, well, look, hang on a moment, Jeff. Um, This doctrine of original sin, that's so unfair. It's so unfair. I mean, after all, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So why am I being punished for their transgressions? Well, the answer the Bible consistently gives is that if you and I had been there in the Garden of Eden, you and I would have done the same thing. The Bible insists we are all inherently sinful, that at heart, I am just as bad as everyone else. Uh, What that means, and I often say this to the students who I work with, what that means is that the only thing that stops me from becoming a megalomaniac dictator is opportunity. If I had the chance, I'd take it. Now, as an aside, this is Romans chapter 1's answer to why do bad things happen to good people? Because what Romans 1 actually says is that none of us are good. There is no such thing as a good person. All of us have rejected our loving creator. And that means now as a race, we reap the consequences of what we have sown. We experience global suffering now. One day, we will answer to our maker for our betrayal. Well, some of you sitting there thinking, oh, Jeff, come on, you're such a pessimist. Surely there's a possibility that over time, humanity will make better choices. Surely we could return to our maker of our own volition. Well, let me introduce you to the second doctrine. To finish the diagnosis, if you look on the right-hand side of your outline, this is the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. Now, I suspect this is the doctrine more than any other that's most misunderstood, so let me be very clear The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean I am the very worst I could possibly be all of the time. 
It doesn't mean, total depravity doesn't mean I'm the very worst that I could possibly be all the time. What it does mean is that every part of me is corrupt in some way. Every part of me is corrupt in some way. Now, so you don't mishear me. I'm not saying there is no good in us. Of course there must be good in every person. We have been made in the image of a good God. But what I am saying is that every part of us is broken in some way. Which means no amount of self-help or self-improvement can ever lead us back to God or rehabilitate our broken world. One way of expressing this is to say that even the most altruistic of actions is still tinged with impure motives. Even the most altruistic of actions is still tinged with impure motives. Uh, Or to put it a different way, in the vocabulary of this series on election, even if there is such a thing as free will or free choice, Romans chapter 1 says we always use that free will to turn away from God, to suppress the truth, to be engaged in a cover-up. And therefore, and I'm kind of sort of whetting your appetite for next week when we come back to look at this in a little more detail, um, I don't think there's much point in Christians talking about free will. There's not much point in us talking about free will if we always use that freedom to turn away from God. The reason I say this is because if we were able to choose to keep God's commands, if we were able to obey him fully then the Apostle Paul says that Christ died for nothing. Christ's death was unnecessary if we could have saved ourselves. Uh, You'll see it printed there on your outline, Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Paul, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what the doctrine of total depravity says is that the, my only contribution to my salvation, the only thing, only part I play in my salvation is my sin. That's the only thing I bring to it. That's why Romans 7 will say that we are slaves to sin, entrapped by our fallen nature. In fact, unconstrained freedom, like in the Canadian riots, it brings out the very worst in us. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 2, printed there on your handout, verse 4, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will say we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. And that statement, uh, pardon the pun, that statement kills off any hope that we might have of helping ourselves. Because the one thing you know about dead people, they cannot self-administer CPR. That's why in the Bible, even repentance and faith are gifts of God. They are not your own doing. And I've given you a couple of references there, Acts 11 and Ephesians 2, if you'd like to think about that. Well, at the end of last year, I went to a conference on evangelism conference that had been called here in Adelaide for church pastors and leaders was designed to address declining conversion rates in the West. The rise of secularism, 
the marginalisation of the church, growing biblical literacy. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you'll know that it feels like actually things are getting worse in Australia for the gospel. That as a society, we are harder to Jesus than we even were in the past. I still remember how the conference began because the keynote speaker got up and here's the very first thing he said. Here's what he said. Evangelism is just as hard today as ever because people are as spiritually dead as they have always been. It is true, there are different challenges in the West. Although, I wonder if ironically we are becoming more like the New Testament churches that we read about in the the Bible who were outcasts in society. Well, please don't despair. It's Jesus who says he will build his church. So there must be a way forward. And I come then to my second question, halfway down the right-hand side, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Well, yes, there is. Uh, The wonderful news of the gospel, and um, I suppose here my dentist analogy that I've been running with all along breaks down, uh, but the wonderful news of the gospel is that the cost of the solution is borne by another, by Christ, who died for me, because he loves me. Christians, I think, ought be deeply pessimistic about human nature. We're not devastated when we see the very worst in humanity because we've come to expect it as a consequence of sin. At one level, we ought be deeply pessimistic about human nature, but at the same time, Christians alone in our world can be unfailingly optimistic about the future because of God's great mercy. He made us alive in Christ, even whilst we were dead in our sins. I've given you a quote there from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the reformed slave trader. Because I wonder if there is any fouler expression of humankind's depravity than slavery. Here's what he said at the end of his life. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Well, almost finished. A big idea, some questions to consider. Let me conclude with how might we respond. My big idea today is that if God treated us fairly, if he treated us as we deserved, then no one would be saved. Now, I realise, of course, that I've carefully avoided a whole series of questions. I've left them for next week. Questions like, well, on what basis then does God choose anyone to be saved if no one deserves it? But today, all I wanted to do is show that if no one deserves our Creator's kindness... If no one deserves our Creator's kindness, you can't earn it, you can't demand it. You can only receive it as a gift. You cannot claim it as an entitlement or a wage. It is only an act of mercy. So let me finish then with two practical responses 
drawn from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax, tax collector. That first reading that Naomi brought to us. Again, if you're filling in the blanks, how might we respond? Firstly, stop, stop looking down at others. Stop looking down at others. Now, as bluntly as possible, I want to say there is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. There is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. All of us have rejected our loving creator. All of us have chosen to live our own way. All of us are guilty before God. Therefore, none of us is any better when compared with our creator. Uh, That's why I've called today's talk... It's actually just taken straight from Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. And of course, the whole power of the parable in Luke 18, of that first Bible reading, is that the Pharisee boasts about how he looks a little less bad than the tax collector. When it's the tax collector who gets that the benchmark is not other people, it's not other sinners, the benchmark is the perfect creator. So even if you're 99% good, it's not good enough. When I was in high school, I had a maths teacher who was very happy to give half marks for working. Uh, If you can remember back to those days, you know how this goes, right? There's a maths test. You have to show you're working and you give the answer. If you get the answer wrong in the last line, if you've shown you're working, you can sometimes still get half marks. And often there's a plea or a negotiation that, that takes place between student and teacher. And I see smiles on your faces. Some of you are probably teachers and know very well what I'm talking about and just wish you never had that conversation. My high school math teacher was always happy to give half marks. He'd give a half marks every time, provided you were okay with him rounding down. And when challenged, he said, well, the reason for that is it didn't matter if you were halfway across the road and the bus hit you. The benchmark is not how you look compared to others around you. It's our benchmark with our perfect creator. And yet, even in church, even in church, we still try to subtly compare ourselves with those around us. I say this in a couple of ways. Firstly, we can think to ourselves that so-and-so could never become a Christian. We can think that so-and-so could never become a Christian. We probably think that way to justify why we won't share the gospel with them, perhaps because we're afraid to, or how they might respond. Let me ask you, who would you put in that category of people who you think could never become a Christian? A murderer? A pedophile? An adulterer, if you have been the victim? Can you see that even by thinking that way, you have started to assume that your sinfulness is somehow less bad than theirs? When it took Christ's blood to atone for our sin.
At the bottom of your outline, on the right-hand side, uh, like each week, I've made references to books you might like to pick up. Here's one that you might like to think about and read. It's a brilliant book by Jerry Bridges. It's called Respectable Sins. It's called Respectable Sins. You can tell from the title what it's all about. It's about the sins that we middle-class Christians very conveniently overlook as we see the, I guess, the speck in someone else's eye. Here's a second way in which we still find ourselves comparing to each other, trying to do so favourably. And this one, just run with me. This is a bit, um, this is a bit unusual, but bear with me on this. I think oddly, we can, as Christians, secretly wish that we had a more dramatic conversion story than the one that we have, as if somehow that would impress unbelievers. You know, we, we can find ourselves thinking, you know, I wish I could stand up before a bunch of unbelievers and say, I was a drug-dealing axe murderer who converted on death row, got pardoned, and now I've turned my life around. I mean, that would be really significant, wouldn't it? And that would be really effective in evangelism. I see smiles on your faces because I know, actually, lots of you were born in Christian homes. And one of the things that really strikes me is in Congress is when I hear Christians get up and say, they start their testimony with something like this, I don't have a very exciting testimony. I was born in a Christian family. I was the good child who always did what I was told. I've always known that Jesus loves me. To which, when they say that, I want to say, hooray, that's fantastic. But if you were dead in your sin and Christ has made you alive, I think that's still pretty outstanding. That's a miracle worth celebrating. If you think that your testimony is boring, you risk becoming like the Pharisee. Thank you, God, I'm not like other people. Or, to use a different parable that Jesus tells, you're at risk of becoming like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because in that parable we see that one can be totally lost, even though you've never left home. Of course, my great problem in talking about this is that, well, when I came to church this morning, actually, deep down, I want you to look at me like I'm the outwardly respectable Pharisee. I don't actually want you to look at me like I'm the inwardly broken tax collector, the one who goes home justified. How do we respond? Stop looking down on others. Final suggestion, other blank for you to fill in there, start by confessing your own sin today. Start by confessing your own sin today. Uh, In a moment, actually, I'm going to finish by leading us in a prayer of confession. Before we do, can I say, whatever your brokenness, well, two things. Firstly, I'm so sorry if Christians have ever looked down on you for your sexuality, for your racial background, for just being different. I'm so sorry if a Christian has ever looked down on you. They ought not have. Because we're all broken. We've all been involved in a cover-up.
None of us is better than anyone else. But secondly, whether you're here today as a younger sibling who's run away from home, or you're here today as an older sibling who's never left, though actually your heart seethes with bitterness and envy, can I say to you, come home. Come home. If you turned up the church this morning like a Pharisee, heartful of pride, make sure you leave like the tax collector, repentant and justified before God. On the screen behind me, you'll see there's a prayer that I'm going to ask you to say with me. Um, I think saying, not singing, is quite okay. It's a prayer of confession that acknowledges both our brokenness, but more importantly, God's great mercy in the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you to join me in saying this prayer together? Heavenly Father, maker of all things, judge of all people, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.